There's a lot of new faces today, and we are in the middle of a series on sex, gender, and the gospel. Um, kind of recap how this series has gone. We spent the first three Sundays, hope the band doesn't mind if I move this stuff back a little bit. We spent the first three Sundays looking at three sort of foundational passages, not just for discussing these, these types of issues, but really discussing any sort of big picture topic in the Bible. You have to kind of go back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and see how God set things up by his design, um, and then see how that carries out from Genesis to Revelation. We can do that in part in this series, and so we looked at what those passages had to say on this topic, and now in this, kind of the second part of this series, we're looking at four passages from the New Testament that sometimes elicit controversy or questions about how we're supposed to take them, how we're supposed to understand them. Um, as I have just about every week of this series, I feel woefully unprepared, but we're going to uh, dive into it anyway. And we're going to be looking at Christian marriage. What does a Christian marriage look like? What is, how is a husband and a wife supposed to relate to each other? It's a pressing question. It has been for two millennia. It has been for centuries. It has been for decades, and it certainly is in 2018. These are things that are constantly in flux in our cultures, constantly in flux in our society, and the Bible gives us guidelines about what this looks like. And yet it doesn't give us uh, too much in the way of stricture. But I'll save that as we get into it. Let's read together from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, <clears throat> submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So as we, as we get into this here, just kind of set a reminder that um, you, know, you can listen to those other three sermons on our website or on your favorite uh, podcasting app because they do sort of set the stage for this discussion this week and the next three weeks after this. Um, as, before we dig in, uh, to this passage, there's some important things to note about the context. See, a danger of this series is that we're taking passages out of their full context. 
And so I want to be sure that we see the bigger picture as we go. Generally, those of you around know that I generally preach generally through whole books at a time, and we can get the whole context, and we can see how the argument flows from passage to passage and, and gets the whole thing. And so there's a little bit of a danger in taking passages out of that context. The, the book of Ephesians that this is drawing from, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to Christians living in what we would call Western Turkey. It's a very rich letter that emphasizes the church's role in God's plan of salvation. And, and the first half or so deals with big picture theology of, of what God has done, is doing, and will do for the sake of his people. And the second half or so teases out the practical implications of this for how God's people, the church, are supposed to live now in light of that. And the passage we're looking at this morning connects to a larger section about different relationships in a Christian household. And that is tied into a command that is given in verses 18 through 21. And so I want to turn there very briefly. Paul, very famously in verse 18, exhorts Christians to be filled with the Spirit. And from that, many groups out there want to talk about being spirit-filled. That's where we get the language of being spirit-filled, is, is Paul's reference in verse 18. And some groups will tell you it's about speaking in tongues or operating in the prophetic or, or bringing about and witnessing powerful miracles. But that's not what Ephesians says. Here's what Paul says a spirit-filled life looks like. He says it looks like addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He says it looks like singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. He says giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now I don't know that Paul intended this to be a comprehensive list, but, but notice what for Paul a spirit-filled existence looks like. It means singing out. Apparently in the gathered body, to sing to each other. When we gather to sing, it's not just for God. We also sing to and for each other. Secondly, it means singing and making melody to the Lord, because it's also to the Lord, and, and, and it's with our hearts. Now, in Greek and Hebrew thought, the heart is not primarily the place of emotions. We, we think of the heart as the you know, place where love is, and, and uh, you know, all of our good feelings but in Greek, that was the bowels, your guts, is where your emotions sat. The heart encompassed the emotions, but it was also the seat of the will, the decision-making engine of the person, the mind. And, and so Paul is saying that we, we sing to God. When we do so, we have to do it with sincere and intentional passion, not phony, not coerced, not peer-pressured, not singing because everyone else around us is singing, a spirit Filled existence is one who's pouring out songs to God because that's what their mind and heart is set on. Uh, and the, those two things, by the way, remind us that true worship is not dependent at all, not on one little iota, on, on the music leaders or the song leaders, the style of music, the quality of the musicianship, the titles of the songs, the publishers, uh, the recording artists. True worship is dependent on the spirit moving within us for the sake of of God and for the sake of each other. 
could say more on that, but we've got to get to 522 through 33. Um, Spirit-filled living also looks like giving thanks in everything. The everything is key because by the Spirit, we are able to give thanks when we lose loved ones, when we lose jobs, when tragedy strikes, when, when Adam's transgression scorches the earth once again and threatens to cauterize our hearts. We can give thanks by the Spirit in ways that sometimes confuse and look strange to those who don't have the Spirit. The people of God, controlled by the Spirit, can rise up and say, we thank you, God, because we know you are sovereign. And we know that you work all things for our good. And we know that this discipline will produce a bounty of righteousness. And we know that we can't begin to fathom the awesomeness of your plan through these tragedies. That might not be all that we pray, but we can pray that. And finally, spirit-filled living looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled people prioritize others before themselves. They honor, this honors Christ because it is precisely how Christ lived and how Christ lives. It, it winds up being the springboard for this entire next section of the text. What does submission look like within the close relationships of a first century household? Paul talks about master-slave relationships. Slaves would have been considered part of the household at that time. He discusses parents and children. And of course he discusses husbands and wives. We know from looking at Genesis 1 through 3 that we should expect that this relationship is going to be tricky. On the one hand, we've seen in, in those uh, messages and we've seen in those passages that husbands and wives are equal, equally created in the image of God, equal in dignity and worth and value. On the other hand, we saw that their roles within creation were unique but complementary, which might lead us to question what submission looks like. And what's more, we know that because of sin, there is strife between husbands and wives. Women attempting to master their husbands and men trying to exercise dominion over their wives. In light of that evil, how should Christians live? Paul breaks it down. First wives and then husbands. And I, and I think that the, the central idea that Paul wants to communicate here is that the distinct roles in a Christian marriage are a witness to Christ's work for his church. The distinct roles in a Christian marriage are a witness to Christ's work for his church. And, and he breaks that down again by wives and then husbands. So very simple outline. So we begin in, in verses 23 through 24, we're talking about the wives. And he starts with, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. A lot of ink has been spilled on these verses. Taken out of context, there could be a mandate for men to abuse women. I'll say more on that in a minute. But in context, that simply is impossible. Many who call themselves um, evangelical feminists or more broadly Christian feminists would argue that we have to interpret these words in the context of the mutual submission of verse 21. Wives submit to husbands and husbands submit to wives, that is, submitting to each other. That's what verse 21 says. Um, 
But the problem with that interpretation is it effectively erases any distinction between the wife and the husband in this passage. It flattens the text, and it doesn't take seriously the fact that Paul writes 12 verses differentiating how husbands and wives should behave toward each other and connecting them to Jesus. It doesn't take seriously that the Holy Spirit working through Paul makes a distinction after this commitment, this command to submit to one another, he makes a distinction then between what that looks like for wives and what that looks like for husbands. And so we can't simply subsume it all under mutual submission and flatten the text. We have to deal with what the text says in full. Now, without a doubt, some, on the other hand, have made distinctions in the past and done so through poor exegesis from the opposite end of the spectrum. An exegesis that neglects much of the substance of this passage in order to create a narrative of control of women for the benefit of men. And that is equally egregious. If we're going to avoid these errors in judgment and come to the text as the Spirit has left it for us, then we need to proceed cautiously. Here's what we have. Within the confines of mutual submission that undergirds how the entire Christian community should behave, within that, there is a way that is uniquely appropriate to speak of wives submitting to their husbands that wouldn't be appropriate to turn around. That is, there is a sense of submission that's fitting for wives that would not be fitting for husbands. And, and we have to kind of get to the bottom of what that is and, and, and what the significance of that is. We'll dig in and get the root of it. But here we're acknowledging that Paul has good reasons for specifying that under the heading of mutual submission, wives submit to their husbands in a unique and important way. Does that make sense? Now Paul explains why. He gives a for statement. And then that tells me he probably felt the need to justify this answer to the Christians living near Ephesus just as much as we need to justify it to Christians living in America. Uh, by and large, my understanding of this time and place, first century Western Turkey, there would have likely been some patriarchal assumptions. But these might have differed based on class, specific ethnic group, and there was a lot of different ethnic groups in the area, whether they were Jew or Gentile in particular. And Paul has... Even in this letter of Ephesians, he has argued for a, a radical egalitarianism whereby all humans are equal at the foot of the cross. And so if we're all equal, we might think there's no difference. And so Paul said, justify it. He is going to push back on that idea a little bit. Equality is not the same thing as differencelessness. $100 of gold and $100 of silver are very different. They're equally valuable. They're similar in many ways. But they're different in important ways as well. And so Paul explains, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. 
and is himself its savior. So the husband is the head of the wife. Well, what, what does that mean? Paul doesn't feel the need to explain it or even justify it, so apparently it's, it would have been clear to his readers. Now, the so-called you know, feminist interpretation or of mutual submission becomes very difficult by any typical definition of the word head that we might understand. But in the last couple decades, and, and you may have come across this, so I want to address it, a number of feminist writers have argued for a meaning of the word kephale, the word that we translate head, as source. And so they would say that the husband or man is the source of the wife or the woman. And look back at how Eve was created from Adam. We saw that in Genesis 2. The problems with that view are numerous. First, it doesn't really solve the dilemma because it just pushes back the question. It would mean that Paul thinks there's a unique sense in which women submit to men that is rooted in Eve being formed from Adam, and that doesn't really remove the submission. Um, The second problem is that the word kephale doesn't mean source anywhere in the ancient Greek literature, or at the very least the evidence for that could be described as best as scant. So we have to deal with the fact that head means head in some meaningful way. And we have to look at how does the Bible use this word? How does Paul use this word? This isn't just a problem for scholars. It's a problem for all of us. This isn't just a little quibble about you know, the technical meanings of different terms and words and things like that. The question really comes down to this. Are we, as spirit-filled Christians, going to have our lives marked by a constant reformation, a reformation of our minds and our hearts in light of what God's Word says? Or are we going to do what we are guilty of doing far too often, which is reading our politics, our sociology, our economics, our culture, our preference, and even our sins into the Bible, rather than letting the Bible correct and challenge our politics, our sociology, our economics, our culture, our preferences, and our sins. You might put it this way, if we don't find ourselves being challenged to change our minds after reading the Bible, we're probably not hearing the Bible. So how does Paul use this term? Well, he uses it two other terms in Ephesians, both of them about Jesus. In one, Jesus is described as above all creation, with all things under his feet. In the other, he is what... Uh, He's the leader of the church to which all the members of the church work to imitate. And that squares with how the word is used elsewhere when not talking about a literal head on top of a pair of shoulders. It refers to a degree of authority. In fact, Paul explicitly ties together the ideas of head and authority in 1 Corinthians 11. Another sometimes controversial passage which we won't 
talk about in this series, um, maybe indirectly in a couple of messages. But listen to us. I mean, listen to me. Here we are in 2018, and, and we're talking about men having some sort of authority over women, and it's very awkward, right? So how do we, how do we get out of this, right? Where's, where's my escape route out of this? Well, we don't. We don't get out of it. That's the difficult part of studying the Bible sometimes. We, we get to the hard parts, and we can't let ourselves try to go around them. We have to go through them. But to go through it, we need to check our cultural baggage at the door. Don't go into this with stereotypical assumptions that uh, the American man is the head of the household. If you do, you'll probably do one of, one of two things. If you're inclined to hate that model, you're going to reject God's word. Because, not because of what it says, but because of American culture. And if you're inclined to like that model of the American, you know, leave it to beaver, head of the household thing, then you're probably going to reject God's word because you're not letting God's word speak for itself. Like many of our cultural assumptions and feelings, there are things that we get right and we should cherish. There are things that we get wrong that need to be thrown out. And and there are other things that maybe need to be reformed and polished before they can be put to Christian use. And we have to make those distinctions carefully. So Paul says, like Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is his body, a husband is the head of the wife. That's a metaphor, of course. It's not intended to be literally true in every conceivable expression of the idea, but it does point us to a reality that we need to appreciate. And speaking of wives, Paul compares wives to the church. He writes, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to in everything to their husbands. Now, make a couple, at least two key points on that. First, objectively, the church does not submit to Christ in everything. Right? Do we agree on that? We're not sinless. The church should submit to Christ in everything, and in the ideal, the church does submit to Christ in everything, But though this is how God ordained things, the members of Christ's church will still sometimes rebel and sin. It should be the exception, not the norm. And it should be more and more the exception over time. But we're pretty sure that Paul's point isn't that wives should generally submit to their husbands, but occasionally rebel horrifically against them as we do to our Savior. I don't think that's his point. So that tells me that the comparison here is between wives and the ideal design for the church, if that makes sense. And I'll I'll say more on that in a minute. Second, Paul makes a tremendous point about the church that we miss if we get too caught on the wives. Ideally, the church submits to Christ in everything. And this means that there is no area of life, none, No thought, no deed, no speech, nothing in all of creation about which Jesus does not demand our allegiance. And we, as his church, if we are called a part of his church, ought to be happy to give it to Jesus. After all, he is our savior. And we are intractably caught up into him. 
We are a part with him. To use a different metaphor, he gave his own body on the cross that we might become his body. He died that we might live. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Christ has bought us with a price, the price of his own blood. So we are his, and we ought to joyfully submit to Jesus. So wives should submit to their husbands even as they, as part of the church, would submit to Jesus. But you might argue, you don't know my husband. Or for all the single ladies, you don't know the guys I've dated. They aren't Jesus. And no, they're not. You're right. Now I'm going to come back to that issue after we've discussed the men, which we'll turn to next. Um, after all, we can't reasonably talk about submission and authority until we know what kind of authority we're talking about. So for now, let's acknowledge you've not dated Jesus and you're not married to him. And we'll come back to that point. So let's look at the men here in 25 through 32. If in this extended metaphor the church is like wives and Jesus is like husbands, then it's only fitting as much as Jesus is greater than his church. He's going to spend a little bit more time on this point. But it's partially also due to the fact that I think we're not going to understand the imagery until we have all the pieces of it. And it begins, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, reminder, we're still under the general rubric of mutual submission. That's this whole section on wives and husbands, slaves and masters, children and parents. But within the husband-wife relationship, there's a, a sense that submission is uniquely fitting for the wife in a way that it wouldn't be for the husband. And there's a sense that loving is uniquely fitting for the husband in a way that it wouldn't be for the wife. And though it may seem odd, an odd way to phrase it, Christian love is a type of submission. And now that the focus is on Christ, our discussion becomes a little bit easier, I think. It's hard to get our heads around submission when the example for submission is an imperfect, rebellious church. It's a little bit easier to get our hands around authority and love when the example is Jesus, who was perfect. It's a little bit more manageable because we can point to him to fill in the details. So let's look at Jesus. Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When we look at the example of Jesus, and John's gospel is particularly rich with this theme, we see that Jesus' love is characterized by a willing surrender of his own interests for the sake of serving others and caring for their interests. In fact, the two ideas loved and gave himself up are nearly synonymous in this phrase. Jesus loved by giving himself up. He gave up his time. He gave up his treasure, he gave up his toil for the sake of others. And ultimately he gave his entire life so that John could write of him, he loved them to the end. Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him as he pointedly remarked. He gave it up of his own will. <clears throat> and Paul gives us the purpose for which Jesus gave himself up as his love relates to the church. Paul says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
Jesus died for his people, the church. He died that his church might be sanctified, which means, I think here it means set apart for God's own purposes. And he does that by cleansing these people. And, and ever since our first parents' sin, we have been sinners, rebels, traitors. Our sins make us unclean. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind take us away. Jesus died to purify us, to cleanse us, of, to cleanse those of us who, who place our faith in him and repent of their sins so, so that we might be forgiven, so we have eternal life, that they might be restored into that right fellowship with God that we lost in the garden. And what means does God use to do this? He uses the proclaimed word, the gospel. Christ is sovereign over this. He laid down his life. He raised up his life. He called a people. He cleanses a people. But he's also sovereign over the means. And he has chosen to call and redeem a people through his weak and rescued people preaching the message about what he has done. He cleanses us through his word. And the purpose of this sanctifying, cleansing work is so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might, might be holy and without blemish. In our culture, and it's not too dissimilar in other cultures I'm familiar with, we expect a bride to be dazzling. And really, we go too far. Most of us recognize we go too far after the wedding day, but um, we go too far in our culture. Uh, we recognize though the wedding day is a special day. You might call it holy in that regard. The groom will get a haircut, and he will rent a tux and put it on about an hour ahead of time. That it only takes 15 minutes, so it leaves him... 45 minutes of standing around. The bride will begin before sunrise. Sometimes even the day before. She'll get her hair done, her nails done, her dress takes more than 15 minutes. She'll have makeup, lots of that. Care has been taken of the jewelry she will wear or not wear. Everything is in place. The gown is in pristine condition. And that's important because we honestly see more of the gown than we do of the woman. The gown is often enormous. I don't know what they wore in the first century, but I think it's telling that Paul moves to a clothing metaphor to describe the bride here. No spots or wrinkles, no blemishes. But what's different in Paul's analogy is that the bride isn't making herself ready for the ceremony. The groom, Christ, takes so much pride and care in cherishing the bride that he makes her ready. On the wedding day, the bride is presented to the groom. In our culture, it's typically by the bride's father. But Jesus is here presenting the bride to himself. He is all glorious, all wonderful, all marvelous. And he is preparing us to stand with him on that day. He is coming for his bride and we will be ready for him because he will make us ready 
for him. And so we will join him in his glory and his splendor. And so part of this cleansing is for him. But part of it's for our sake as well. He wants us to be holy and without blemish. Morally pure as we ought to be. And every Christian knows the aching and the longing to be rid of sin once and for all. And so we will be. It's amazing what Christ has done and is doing. But then we have to flip that back to the husbands. And that's quite a thing. Because what Jesus has done for the church to love her is incredible, it's magnificent. And that is how men are to love their wives. Paul doesn't go into all this detail about how Christ loved his church just for impressive effect. I think he brings up these things specifically because he believes that Christian husbands ought to do the same sort of spiritual good for their wives. We can't die for a wife's sins, but we can do some similar things. Let me give you four. A man should give himself up for his wife. This means, on some level, the traditional chivalry of being willing to die for a woman, sure. But there are many men who fancy themselves heroes of their own movie in the moment of mythic battle, but they will not stop to serve in the more mundane moments of life. They are heroes in their minds only. Jesus healed lepers. He was interrupted during his times away. He was touched by hemorrhaging women and and by men crazed by demons. He stooped to cleanse the dusty feet of blue-collar men who had been walking the Judean countryside. That's a good Christian husband. So single ladies... You can put that on your checklist. See how he has served others. Because it's a good indicator of how well he'll serve you in five years, or 15 years, or 30 years, or 50 years. Of course, Jesus didn't die. Secondly, Jesus didn't die for our physical lives primarily, he died for our spiritual lives. And Christian men ought to be willing to go to great lengths, even death, to protect their wives spiritually. Third, Jesus ordained that we would be made holy through his proclaimed word. The gospel is not just for unbelievers, the gospel is for believers. The gospel is for all people. We need to be constantly reformed and reshaped and purified and cleansed by the good news of the gospel of grace. And so Christian husbands have a special obligation, as Adam did in the garden, we we talked about this last week, to proclaim the word of God to their wives. 
to disciple them into holiness. So women, single ladies, look for a discipler. A guy who disciples other guys is a guy who will disciple you. A man who does not make it a priority to disciple other men may very well not have an interest in loving you as Christ loved the church. Fourth, a Christian husband is proud of his wife's spiritual character. He wants her spiritual beauty to shine, even as Christ wants the church to shine at his side. And so he seeks to help her maximize her spiritual beauty. There's four things for you. Challenges to the husbands here. Checklist of what to look for for the single ladies here. Checklist to see what kind of man you need to be for the single men here. If you're the kind of man who even needs to be entertaining a marriage. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So just like the church is the body of Christ, so he's going back to this head-body analogy, he cares for it. The head, the head doesn't abuse the body. It doesn't harm its own body. Or if it does, in those rare cases where it does, we all acknowledge this to be a terrible, irregular, horrible thing, something that needs to be straightened out and aided immediately. And this is why, this is precisely why, the Christian ethic cannot tolerate spousal or relational abuse. If a husband were to hit his wife or to lash out at her, it would be like a depressed man cutting himself. We have witnessed an onslaught of high-profile cases of men abusing women and abusing their wives Men are using their size, their power, their influence to take advantage of women. It's not new. The present moment is only scandalous because we, and by we I mean largely men, have either been guilty, complicit, or otherwise unbelieving that such a thing could continue unabated in our modern culture. But sin knows no cultural boundaries. Human civilization does not evolve away from sin. I'll share a personal story. A number of years ago, I worked for a company, not a church, thank God, where I was told an employee had crossed a serious sexual boundary with some of the female employees. I won't get into the details. Um, in my naivete, I protested they needed to tell the boss that that's what you do, you know, you tell the boss. Um, they were convinced the boss wasn't going to do anything about it. 
and there was no value in it, and they just had to endure it. After all, by the most important metrics, this guy was the best employee, and he'd been around for decades. I was indignant, and so I went to the boss myself. I don't know if he would have listened to the women, but he did suspend the employee for two weeks. In retrospect, I don't think that was appropriate. I think he should have been gone. I don't tell that story to show you how great I am. Actually, I, I share that story for the exact opposite reason. Because although I was shocked and outraged at the incident, nothing in that incident prompted me to rethink my understanding of our culture. I looked at this one guy as a, a lout and an uncivilized holdover from an uncivilized age, the 1980s. I, I didn't stop to think that sin runs deep, that it's deceptive and seductive, and so I believed the lie that it was just an exception, a relic that we'd evolved beyond. And so I was, like many of us, taken aback at the Me Too movement and wasn't sure how to process it at first. Christians don't believe, that the, don't believe the lie that our culture will evolve past its sins. It won't. That's the vice of politics and social crusading. It makes you believe it's possible to change hearts through actions. Don't fall for it. And the right and the left are both equally guilty of it. Vices must be washed away through the word of the gospel. It's the policy of the elders of this church to not tolerate physical abuse in the least. So to the women in particular, I say, submitting to your husband, whatever else we say here, does not mean enduring physical abuse at his hands. And single ladies, you are looking for a man who will nourish and cherish you. That's what Paul writes here about Christ. He will strive to make you better. He will strive to make you stronger, strive to make you more capable, primarily in spiritual ways. But you can't limit it to that because every aspect of our lives is given over to the Spirit. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his, mother, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul does with these words is connect the idea of the wife being the body and, and, the, and the husband being the head back to Genesis 2 where we see the original design for marriage, the two becoming one flesh. And that means, at the very least, that the wife's priorities, as much as the husband's priorities, in some, are, are, are tied together in so much as whatever the husband does to harm the wife harms his own self. Whatever the wife does to harm her husband, she harms her own self because they are of one piece. But also within that, we have this fantastic reminder that Christian marriage is a reclaiming of God's original design for marriage. Christian marriage is not following the Genesis 3 model of the woman seeking mastery over her husband and the husband exercising dominion over the wife. That's 
That's the way of the world. That's the world plagued by sin. But in Christ, by the Spirit working in us, we can reclaim imperfectly in this life, but we can begin to reclaim God's vision for what marriage ought to be. And in saying that it refers to Christ and the church, Paul is making another profound thought that marriage preaches the gospel. Marriage preaches the gospel. Not in full, not without explanation, but it's a visual symbol to the dying world of what Christ is like and what Christ has done for his people. And so when a dying world sees a wife submitting to her husband out of reverence for Christ and sees a husband devoted to his wife's well-being, particularly her spiritual well-being, out of reverence for Christ, it gives the world a picture of the church and her king. And so we have to ask ourselves whether our marriages, to the extent that we have marriages in here, we got a lot of single people, but whether our marriages tell the truth about Jesus or tell lies about Jesus. And if we're single, we must ask whether we want, should God call us into marriage to have marriages that speak the truth about Jesus? Paul sums these ideas up in verse 33, and it gives us space to sum up some things. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then we can circle back to the wife here and address some lingering questions of application. When we think about the wife submitting to the husband, let's make four points clear. One, the husband does not submit the wife. It doesn't say that. The wife submits herself. She is in control of her own submission. Jesus never forces the church to submit. He tenderly and lovingly woos her. Forced submission is not what a wife is called to and not what a husband is called to do. Second, we hear the word submission as a matter of inferiority. But we need to understand submission within the creation order established in Genesis 2. There, man was made, given a commission, and then the woman was made to help him in that commission. The man was given, as we saw, responsibility of initiative over the stewardship of creation. And the wife was to come alongside and help him fulfill that mandate. And so we apply that to what we're seeing here. In the Christian home, the husband should take an initiatory responsibility to lead his wife and, if called to it, family. First and foremost, in the pursuit of godliness, but also in other matters, the husband needs to lead. And in this sense, the wife is called to submit to his godly initiative. Third, a good leader 
would never lord it over others. And especially in a marriage in which the two are equals, a good husband should seek the counsel and advice of his wife. A good husband will even defer decisions to her judgment, knowing she is wiser or more intelligent or better suited in this or that matter. Fourth, Paul is speaking about Christian marriage, presumably in which husbands love their wives like Christ. And in that context, in that context, submission would be a delight. At least it would be as much as a delight as it is a delight to submit to Jesus. On a practical level, though, we know that marriages don't always look like this. Some of you may be in, may have been in, or may someday be in marriages in which the other party is not interested in following the biblical model for any number of reasons. What do you do? I think you do the same thing. Let's look at the women, we'll look at the men. Women, you'll still love your husbands, even if they're bad husbands. You'll still submit to them as you're able. You will dis- you'll demonstrate the goodness of Jesus both to your husband and to a watching world by how you come alongside your husband and help him. That could be very hard for several reasons. One, your husband might not lead. There are too many men these days that aren't really leaders. They profess to be and they pretend to be and they aren't. There is a real lack of leaders among men these days and in the church especially, it's a, it's a crime. Real leaders. We've, we've got plenty of phony ones and ones with titles and positions but they're weak men. Single ladies, stay away from those guys. Stay far away from them. But for those of you who find yourself married to one, be patient with him. Give him every opportunity to lead. Encourage him to lead. Help him to lead. Pray for him to lead. He might not ever lead. But you can stand by him and wait and pray. Secondly, it could be hard because your husband might lead in an ungodly way. That can be true of a Christian husband as much as a non-Christian husband. Since you're not married to Jesus, your husband will make mistakes. You have no obligation to follow your husband into sin. You have to say, I will submit to you as to the Lord. But if you make me choose between submitting to you and submitting to the Lord, I will serve the Lord. Third, your husband might lead, and he might lead in godly ways, but he might fail to care for you and nourish you. If it's a matter of abuse, if you are in real physical danger, physically remove yourself immediately. And this church will help you do that. If it's not a matter of harm, or if it's neglect more than anything, it's it's impossible to cover every permutation, every scenario. 
pursue relationships with godly women who can strengthen you in the faith. Speak to the elders of our church about how we can be discipling or evangelizing your husband more effectively. Husbands, your wife might not submit to you because she doesn't want to submit, either because she rejects the idea of submission or because she pays lip service to it, but with her actions she effectively subverts it. Make your leadership so Christ-like that she can't help but submit to it. Let her see that your husbandly leadership is such that it fulfills all of her deepest and strongest desires, which we know for all of us are rooted in our Savior and a growth in holiness. If you patiently love her like Christ loved his, loves his church, and she knows the Lord Jesus, you will be okay. On the other hand, your wife might not submit because she doesn't share your Christian values. Hopefully, single ladies, you don't get yourself into this situation. Single men, you don't get yourself into this situation, but it happens now and then. Here's what you do. You love more deeply. You love harder. You nourish her more. You care more. You pray more. You consider the depth of the sins from which Christ pulled you and how patiently and tenderly he sought you though he had a million reasons to cast you aside. And you do the same. Gently. Patiently. Not knowing the end from the beginning like our Lord does but in hopes of a harvest of faith. And I know in speaking about marriage, because it's a more controversial topic, um, maybe there's not as much application for single people, and so I wanted to speak to singles for a moment about why you need to take this in. One, the practical level, you might get married, God might have that for you. He might not, and that's okay. That's not where your ultimate joy comes from. Your ultimate joy comes from the satisfaction of your Savior, not in a man. And we don't know, we don't know the end anyway, you know, not, not in a woman. So we don't know the end. You could be married for six months. You could be married for five years. Death do us part is a wonderful thing. It can also be a tragic thing. So your satisfaction with your marriage or not has to be in something much deeper than your husband or your wife. If your satisfaction is in your husband or your wife. All I can tell you is that statistics say your satisfaction is not going to last. So you might get married, and so you, you, you need to know what kind of woman and what kind of man uh, are you going to be? What, what is going to dictate your heart in the course of your life? So you're prepared for that. Secondly, you will know married people. You do know married people. Contrary to public belief, single people, you can disciple married people. I don't recommend that 
single men disciple married women. And I don't recommend that single women disciple married men. But yes, while you could be uh, charged with you don't know what you're talking about, that's not the basis of your discipleship. Our discipleship is not based on your personal experiences and your great insight to the human condition. Our discipling is from the Word of God. Singles, you have the Word of God as much as anyone. There are married people in this church. There are married people in your family. There are married people among your friends to whom you may see problems in their marriage. And you say, I don't know how to help them. I'm a single. I don't, I don't, yes, you do know how to help them. You do. You have the word of God. You open it up. You pray. You talk. And third, whether you're married or whether you're single, we need to fight for marriages. And we need to fight for marriages, even if they're not your own. Because marriage preaches the gospel. And the divorce rate among churches is scandalous. It is a horrifying thing. Now, I I know there are statistics out there that say that the divorce rate among Christians is the same as in the regular world. I don't, for reasons I won't get into, I don't think that that is actually true. I just think that Unfortunately, when we do our sociological surveys and things, we count a lot of things as Christian that I think most of us would reject. But it is still scandalously high. And that is a blight on the gospel because when a couple divorces, it makes Jesus look like a liar. Because The Jesus that we serve, who bought us by his blood, will hold us fast and never let us go. And so, when we divorce, we are saying something about Jesus. That the church can be severed from him or that he can be severed from his church. And that is a horrific thing to preach to a dying world. That is not how Jesus has loved us. No. Despite my sins, despite my wretchedness, despite my mistakes and my evils, he holds me still. And so we as Christians need to fight for marriages. We need to fight for marriages that aren't even our own. Because they are caught up in the same Savior. It is your business. Especially if it's in your own church. If, if you're a member of a local church, as you ought to be, and, and there's a couple in your church that is looking at a divorce, it is your business. It's not a private affair. No private affairs in the church. Well, don't take that too far. That's, you could pull away some really bad theology from that. But the point being is that our lives should be transparent in the church, that we should be open books before each other. When we become members of Christ's church, we open ourselves to the discipleship and discipline of the other members of the church. 
for the sake of our growing holiness. And that means we can't sit by idly and watch marriages and lives get destroyed by divorce. So whether you're married or whether you're single, fight for marriages. I know there's a lot of more we could say on this and, and just throw it out there. You know, our, our growth groups are working through this material as well and can dive into a little bit deeper application. So I encourage you to um, be at growth group uh, this week. There's a list of them in the back if you're interested in joining one. The Christian marriage and the distinct roles that God designed in a Christian marriage are witness to Christ's work for his church. And if that's true, then we need to live up to it. And we need to encourage one another to live up to it so that our lives speak true things about our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are very, very, very sinful and desperately in need of your grace. And I am not the only husband here, the only spouse here, who knows he has fallen short. But Father, we thank you for the grace of your Lord Jesus. Strengthen us to be better men and to be better women, to be husbands who lovingly surrenderingly and in a godly manner lead our families. Make us wives who lovingly and humbly come alongside their husbands to fulfill the work that you've given us as your image bearers, and as Christians. And make us the kind of people that are fit for those roles if you never call, this, never call us to them or if you do. Men and women who disciple, who speak the word boldly to one another, who encourage each other to grow in grace, who practice surrendering their own priorities and prerogatives for the sake of others. May we at Gateway be a church of which can honestly be said they submit to their Lord, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.